It was the middle of the night two weeks ago. Wake up, there's some man trying to hit us with a hammer. Brutally attacked with a blunt instrument and a knife. Been beaten on the head with a hammer. That very moment, I just about stopped breathing. Bennett family was brutally attacked. I was in a coma. A very brutal, horrific scene. I knew she was dead. I, I just knew. You know, they were good people. Why did, you know, what did they do wrong? We have no hard suspects at this time. But it's, it's always there. That the guy is probably deceased. It was comforting to think this person was dead. The hammer man, whatever you want to call it. It's always there in the back of my mind. Every day in all these years. It haunted the families and the victims to the core. I had a lot of nightmares. You know, the fear that we lived with all these years, we always wondered if he was still out there because he would know who we were, but we wouldn't know who he was. It's been over 34 years. He's known, but he, we just don't have his name. Tonight, they will complete their reconstruction of the crime and combine those results with fingerprint tests from evidence that was sent to a Texas laboratory. I think it's a good possibility there were more than one assailant, yes. Even though Aurora police are releasing limited information about their investigation, they told us today they have interviewed and eliminated six possible suspects. We have several... Well, more than several unsolved homicides, especially involving young women in Colorado. And I think it is a relief if there is a possibility these people are responsible for those. In the days after a madman used a hammer to beat Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett to death and left three-year-old Vanessa Bennett clinging to life in Aurora. We're continuing to receive telephone tips. We're following up all these leads. And after a man with a hammer raped and killed Patricia Louise Smith in Lakewood. Right now, we're still investigating uh, preliminary investigations. We have no hard suspects at this time. We're uh, doing tests at the house, which will continue uh, through tomorrow. The scramble is on to try to make sense of the senseless. Two deadly attacks, six days and 23 miles apart. They weren't drug deals gone bad, jilted lovers, revenge. That much seemed clear. But beyond that, the puzzle pieces didn't fit together in any obvious way, didn't yield any kind of picture of the person who could unleash such brutality, or even whether it was all the work of a single killer. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, and this is Blame, the Fear All These Years. The two murders were in suburbs on opposite sides of Denver's metro area. Patricia Smith was killed in Lakewood, a sleepy bedroom community on Denver's western edge. Neighborhoods of brick ranch homes and shady streets, wide commercial thoroughfares like perpetually gritty Colfax and Alameda. Smith's Lane was one of two murders in Lakewood in 1984. And while it was shocking, the city wasn't immune to violence. There'd been six killings the year before. Across town on Denver's eastern edge sat the fast-growing suburb of Aurora, where the Bennetts were bludgeoned. And even with the slayings of three members of the same family, the city's 12 killings in 1984 were exactly what it averaged throughout the 1980s. But statistics didn't matter. The murders left people jittery, and they rushed to buy new locks and even guns. Patrol officers are being cautioned about approaching homes at night without identifying themselves because some frightened homeowners have bought guns. What we're afraid of the most is that someone that does not know how to use a weapon will shoot someone that is not the criminal or may shoot themselves. Ricky says nighttime patrols are concentrating on residential areas and he says they're stopping anything that moves. And while it was the killings that got the headlines, 
It's important to remember they were the final two in a series of four assaults that month in the Denver area. On January 4th, a man with a hammer attacked a couple sleeping in bed, leaving them injured but alive. Five days later, on January 9th, a man with a hammer attacked a flight attendant as she pulled into her garage, savagely beat her and raped her. The next day, on January 10th, a man with a hammer killed Patricia Smith. And then six days after that, on January 16th, a man with a hammer attacked the Bennett family. With four attacks that sounded so familiar, a man with a hammer and unspeakable violence, it might have made sense to coordinate the investigations. But that was something that cops just didn't do. So Lakewood detectives worked the Smith case, and Aurora detectives worked the Bennett murders and the other two attacks in their city. The Aurora Police Department has a well-equipped crime lab, and so far the 20 people working on this case aren't calling on other agencies for help. Even Denver Police Division Chief Don Mulnick suggested it might be a good idea to pool resources. We really feel that perhaps, uh, you know, we at least ought to make the offer to Aurora to form a, a temporary metropolitan area homicide task force in regard to this case so that we all have first-hand information in regard to any uh, possible similar crimes uh, that would fit into this particular investigation. But it never happened. There would be no Metro-wide Homicide Task Force, despite what seemed like a viable offer from Denver police, who handled many more murders in a given year. 83 in 1984, for instance. But even though there was a difference of opinion on that question, one thing Denver Division Chief Molnix would not criticize his fellow agencies for were decisions they made about what information to release and what to hold back. And as far as covering the exact uh, number of these things or where they happened or what they were, we don't want to do that. You know, we feel that that would be, uh, could possibly be detrimental to the case. You know, we don't want to share our information with the person out there that committed these crimes. So we'll let uh, Aurora make the decisions on, you know, what should or shouldn't be released again. It's always been a dicey proposition for detectives. Sometimes releasing information leads other witnesses to come forward with tips that advance an investigation. But more often, detectives hold back. We'd rather not release those to the public right now because our concern is that the suspect or suspects involved here don't know what we know about the case. So it's mandatory we don't release anything about it right now. In the end, Lakewood and Aurora couldn't even agree on what seemed like a no-brainer that the same person was responsible for all four hammer attacks that month. It had to be the same guy, right? As they worked in those early weeks, investigators focused on two things, one made public, one held back. There were the common factors in all four attacks beyond the fact hammers were used. In each case, a garage door was open. The flight attendant had just driven into her garage and the door was still open when she was assaulted and responding officers to the other three scenes found garage doors standing open when they arrived. In each case, a purse was dumped out, apparently in a harried search for cash. And all four crime scenes were within blocks of Alameda Avenue, suggesting the killer might have been moving up and down the busy east-west road, perhaps for work. Behind the scenes, the detectives were doing what detectives do in the early stages of an investigation checking out people close to the victims. In the killing of Patricia Smith, investigators looked at her husband, at her daughter's estranged husband, at friends of her sons. Early on, there was some attention on your family and acquaintances and stuff as potentially 
being suspects and oh yes in the in the beginning yeah yes I mean it was anybody any of us had ever known or possibly come into contact yeah with. yes family members included which that's just part of the deal all these years later Smith's daughter Sherry Letton understands it was that frustrating was that hard um it was hard it wasn't frustrating because all I wanted to know is is just to find the person. I mean, it would have been horrific to be a family member or somebody we knew. But at the end of the day, just finding that person was all that we cared about. And for a long time, I think we were suspected in a, by the Aurora police. Connie Bennett, who went to her son's house on that awful Monday morning and walked into a scene she's never forgotten, feels differently. I had that feeling that there was suspicion on our immediate family. And that was very frustrating to think about, that we would even, my because my two sons and I were over there that night before that happened. And uh, I mean, we just had a little party for Melissa, you know, because she was going to be eight years old the next day. We left at nine o'clock and then the next morning, I found found them. Bruce, well, Bruce was there. I found his body. And so that was traumatic. Um, and then to think that we might have been suspected was just on top of it, you know. Uh, and I think for several years that was um, uh, well, I don't know what you would call it. I knew we hadn't done I didn't know who it was, but I knew it was not anybody we knew, you know. So that was very frustrating for me. That work eventually led investigators to conclude that no one in either family was involved, but it didn't get them any closer to figuring out who was. What progress there was was incremental, coming as years passed with no suspect. In 1989, a detective working the Bennett case went through all the evidence and discovered that a comforter found in the bedroom shared by Vanessa and Melissa Bennett had never been sent to a crime lab for testing. That testing revealed a blood type presumed to be from the killer, ABO. At the recommendation of a technician at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the detective sent swatches of the comforter and carpeting from the girl's bedroom, which had semen stains on them, to a lab in California. Testing of that evidence in 1990 yielded one DNA marker, another clue in a mountain of them. As 1994 arrived, reporters prepared for the obligatory anniversary stories, and the long-styming search for the killer was wearing on detectives. Particularly given the high profile and the number of man hours committed to it uh, for the first several years, uh, thousands of man hours and the fact that that it's one partly because of the nature of the crime it's one that everyone would like to solve nobody likes an unsolved case but this one we really would like to to clear time is a detective's enemy memories fade witnesses die what could be crucial evidence remains undiscovered or gets lost and as another decade passed, the investigation of the first two attacks was shelved permanently. 
the statute of limitations passed for those crimes. The focus was entirely on the killings. In reality, it was as if the Bennett case was the only one that mattered. Patricia Smith's murder was seldom mentioned publicly. Oh, it's a, it's a horrendous case. The Bennett murders and the arc of the investigation tracked the career of Aurora police investigator Casey Williams, who talked to Nine News in the early 2000s for an update on the case. Back when it happened... I was a brand new patrolman. More than 15 years later, he was a detective. And in 1998, 99, and 2001, Williams and other investigators resubmitted evidence, pieces of that comforter in the carpeting beneath Melissa Bennett's body for more sophisticated DNA testing that had been developed in the interim. Let's stop for a moment and talk a little bit about DNA here. What's today known as the FBI's Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, is a collection of two kinds of genetic profiles. One set of profiles are those from known offenders and arrestees, people behind bars for a serious crime. The others are known as forensic profiles, evidence left behind at crime scenes like blood or semen that hasn't been linked to a specific person. Today in CODIS, there are more than 17.6 million profiles of known offenders and arrestees, and nearly a million more unidentified genetic fingerprints from crime scene. We're able to find um, a piece of evidence that had that ev- that had DNA on it. Not just DNA, but a full profile. That profile was entered into the criminal DNA databases, but it didn't yield a match. After striking out there, Williams began a new quest in the spring of 2002, drafting an arrest warrant for the man who killed Bruce Deborah and Melissa Bennett and left Vanessa Bennett with injuries that would affect her for the rest of her life. It listed 17 separate charges, beginning with six counts of first-degree murder, three alleging the slayings of Bruce Deborah and Melissa were premeditated, three alleging they were killed in the commission of another felony. A judge signed it the next day. It named the killer, or rather, it identified him. John Doe, an unknown male with matching deoxyribonucleic acid DNA profile at the genetic loci D3S1358 type 15 slash 16, FGA type 22.2 slash 25, D2 D1A51 type 13 slash 14, D1C7 type 11, TPOX type 8 slash 11, and DQ alpha 4 slash 4 developed by the polymerase chain reaction DNA technology. So it is an absolute identification. It was a first-of-its-kind warrant. The DNA had identified a killer. Prosecutor Ann Pomzik was working the case at the time. So the case is actually solved. He's known, but he, we just don't have his name. But even that genetic code breakthrough was of little solace to Connie Bennett. We'll never get over it. The time that has been taken from this family Excuse me. I lost of our loved ones is the most unbearable part of it all. Whoever attacked this young, innocent family has not yet been brought to justice. There was still no public acknowledgement of whether authorities thought the same man had killed Patricia Smith. It's a staple of cold case work that from time to time a new detective gets assigned. That detective reads the file, looks for people that could or should be interviewed, evidence that could or should be tested. In 2009, detectives in Lakewood launched a new round of testing in the Smith case. 
As with the Bennett case, one piece of evidence sent to the lab was a section of carpeting taken from beneath Patricia Smith's body. A piece of carpeting with semen on it. In 1984, I was sergeant in charge of the robbery homicide team. It's as if it happened the other day. That testing led to a development that brought Lakewood police detectives investigating Patricia Smith's murder and Connie Bennett, whose loved one's murders were being investigated by Aurora police, to the same room for a press conference. There's somebody out there that knows something that has never come forward. Sometimes you don't hear anything for a long time. You think, well, have, has everyone forgotten? Just that fact, because of the viciousness of the attack, uh, led to consternation among citizens of Lakewood. But then a week later, when the Bennett homicide occurred out in Aurora, and three members of a family were killed with a hammer, and it was general panic around the Denver metro area at the time. And everybody was afraid of a serial hammer murderer walking the streets. It means something to me that people would remember it. Because, uh, because I remember it. Finally, 26 years later, confirmation of something that seemed obvious in the beginning but was never explicitly stated. There is a DNA match that's been established between these two homicide scenes. Now there was no doubt that the man who raped Patricia Smith and beat her to death with a hammer was the same man who killed Bruce Deborah and Melissa Bennett and terribly injured three-year-old Vanessa. Usually they think about an old cop being jaded after a while, but I find myself getting really excited about a situation like this where we have an isolated D DNA profile. It gives us a little bit of hope that um, this person, if they're still out there, can be caught. And uh, it doesn't uh, change what's happened, but it would be good to see someone brought to justice. But the hope in that profile didn't lead to a suspect. Year after year, there was no hit on the genetic fingerprint left at two murder scenes by the same man. Why is a question no one could answer. Maybe he didn't commit any more crimes, not likely. Maybe he was in prison and never had his DNA tested. Maybe he was dead. I've been working on on and off for uh, about eight years. So police, led by Aurora detectives, started searching for creative new ways to catch this guy. There were no witnesses that we came across that says, I think it's this person or I saw this. Aurora detective Steve Connor was still on the case. It's one of the uh, older unsolved cases that we have. In 2016, one thing Connor did was package up that DNA profile, the one that had been listed in an arrest warrant for more than a decade, and sent it off to a company called Parabon Nanolabs, which promised to take that profile and produce a tangible look at the person who it belonged to. Imagine a computer-generated, high-quality picture of a face, a sort of modern technology version of a police sketch, rendered in color pixels instead of shades of pencil gray. If you'd asked me five years ago, I'd have said, no way. I mean, how can you produce something from, you know, from DNA? Hair color, eye color, facial features, uh, skin tone, whether or not they have freckles. The image produced from the DNA showed a young man, an utterly ordinary looking young man. Other ethnic minorities or races, I can eliminate them based upon the image that I have. The thing that for us we're excited about because it puts a face or an image to a person we're looking for. We had an idea that the, um, the suspect was possibly a white male. This confirmed that as well as the hair and eye color. Caucasian with blue eyes and brown hair. We're looking at someone that's 
of uh, Western and Northern European descent, as opposed to you know Hispanic male or black male. So it's narrowed the the field to that. We have received probably I don't know 40, 50 calls on it. We've eliminated um, suspect through obtaining their DNA. But at the same time, Aurora police investigators were working a different angle too. I am Colleen Fitzpatrick. My doctorate is in nuclear physics from Duke University. They turned to Fitzpatrick, a genealogist, one whose work evolved from trying to help adoptees find their birth parents to trying to help cops find suspects in their most vexing cases. If those Aurora detectives couldn't identify their killer in the criminal DNA database, Maybe they could use a different DNA database to identify his relatives. We use genetic genealogy to try and find, uh, we call them DNA cousins of one kind or another. And that will hopefully lead us to the identity of our unknown. Until recently, when there was no link found in the CODIS database, it was often the end of the road. Now, researchers like Fitzpatrick use DNA from crime scenes to try to find relatives find them not in the FBI's criminal database, but in what are known as open source databases, ones where people upload the DNA profiles they've obtained of themselves from Ancestry.com or 23andMe to try and find long-lost relatives. And then investigators build a family tree and look for people who could be suspects. My work with the Aurora Police Department was that they asked me to compare the Y DNA on the case to the genetic genealogy databases, as I've explained. Um, there are many databases, there are thousands and thousands of databases of DNA, YSTR uh, results from people, genealogists who have taken those tests over the years. And they've posted them online in various groups, hoping to find matches and family members, you know, attract a uh, long lost family. What's all that mean? It's really pretty simple. Y DNA is from a chromosome only men have. Since the DNA in these cases was extracted from semen, detectives knew their killer was a man, so they could eliminate women from their searches. And when Fitzpatrick talks about STR DNA, she's referring to a common type of analysis known as short tandem repeat, basically one of the methods used to develop a genetic profile. So with some proprietary software we've developed, we can harvest or mine those databases for matches to Y-DNA, which should provide a last name for the killer. So the Aurora Police Department hired me to do that in January, I think 2016, uh, and at that time, I came up with the name Ewing. A name, and with it, a new chance to solve the cases. Then my hope that before I die, that I can take a look at whoever this monster is. But even with that name, the passage of three decades left detectives involved in the case increasingly convinced they were chasing a ghost. My personal opinion is, based upon the evidence, there's a whole bunch of things that come into play, um, that the guy is probably deceased. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. And I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Prior coverage of the Bennett family murders was from Nine News reporter Noel Brennan and former Nine News reporters Bill Britt, Victor Avalos, Cheryl Preheim, and Rick Salinger. 
There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like blame, the fear all these years, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And Blame, lost at home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com. 